Amen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're here for the first time, if you're watching and tuning in for the first time, welcome. It is good to be with you. It's good to be worshiping with you. And I hope that in this season so far, the season of Christmas, you have found time to find joy in this kind of new experience of a, of a holiday in quarantine of sorts. I have, uh, my family and I, we have, it's been a journey. We've been trying to figure this thing out. We have three young kids, uh, six, five, and four, and everything seems to be closed right now. Like everything seems to be closed. And uh, we're trying to find all these different ways that we can make this season just as fun, just the same as before. And one thing that I've noticed is that this year, apart from anything else, apart from any other year, is that I think my kids are actually starting to get it now. Like they're starting to understand Christmas and like the anticipation of Christmas and presents, and particularly my, uh, my four-year-old daughter. Um, I'll just say, none of them give, you know, none of them spill the beans on like who gets what. But one of them gets particularly excited about telling people that they have a gift coming. And that's my daughter. She loves telling people that there's a gift coming, along with my, with, with my son, too. But uh, this, earlier this week, I was telling them, you know, okay, guys, I got the present that you're giving to your mom. And they're like, oh, I'm so excited. Where, where is it? Where is it? And so, so I tell them, I'm, okay, but it's in my office. I'm going to keep it there. You don't, you know, so she won't see it. So everything's okay. And they're like, okay, great. And then in a, like a few moments later, I see my daughter in the kitchen telling Amy, she's like, okay, don't go into dad's office. Don't go into dad's office. And then she looks at me and I'm like, what are you doing? And she looks and she's like, because it stinks in there. I was like, what? And she looks back at me and she's, no, there's actually a fire. And then she looks back at me. She's like, but they put it out with a lot of water. You can't go in there. It was so funny. It was hilarious. <laughs> the way that she was trying to like come up with reasons for my, for my wife not, uh, not coming in. And I think it's just really fun. It's a, it's a wonderful time to spend. And I want to take advantage of it, it, all of these little moments, all these little times. Um, and I know that they're watching right now, so they're probably like, that's not how it went. But anyway, anyway, we are going through the Advent series called Awaiting the King, the Promise of Advent. And this is a time each week we've been gathering together and we've been looking at Old Testament passages that give a particular promise, a promise that ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament. So as we're going through this, I want us to to pray and posture ourselves in a place of looking at how God speaks these promises to his people and how they become fulfilled in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for, this, for the small joys that you've been giving us during this holiday season. And we thank you, God, that those small joys are ultimately just glimpses and pictures of the delight of the rejoicing of the hope and of the love that we find in you. God, I thank you for times where we can celebrate seasons with family and also times that when we believe that our hope 
Maybe our joy is being weakened through weariness. You lift us up. I pray, God, that you'd be with us and that you'd speak to us in this passage, that you'd speak the nature of your love to us in this passage this morning. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. So one characteristic of God is love. We hear this often. God is love. 1 John 4, verse 8. God is love. We hear that. But sometimes we leave it too early. We have the description. We take the description. But then we move on. And we can look at some different circumstances of what that actually means as God is loved, love the very description of, of God himself. But what I love about this passage, about this book of Zephaniah, is it gives us a better description by giving us the nature of God's love, showing us the very nature of his love. This book you could see the entire Old Testament, kind of, if you could wrap up the entire Old Testament into one, one book, three short chapters, it would be this. It would be Zephaniah. In this one theologian, he writes, this passage is the, is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. What we see in this book is we see this prophet prophesying over two groups of people, over these faithful people, but also these, these wicked, these evil people who are suppressing and unjustly hurting the faithful. But then through that, through these circumstances, God is making these declarations, these declarations of both judgment, but he's also making these declarations of love of how he is going to be among his people. He is going to be there. He's going to be with them. And his loving grace is going to save them from both their sin, but also from all of these circumstances. And it's Zephaniah here. He's, he's describing to the people what the nature of God's love is is. And we're going to see how that's so clearly reflected in Advent. So Zephaniah 3, verses 16 through 17, it reads this. We just heard this just a moment earlier, but I'm going to read it again. It says this, On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is among you, a warrior who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love. He will delight in you with singing. So let's pause there. Let's just move to and focus in on verse 16. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands grow weak. What does that mean? What does he mean by that? Now, this term, this kind of expression, do not let your hands grow weak, in some translations it will say, do not let them go limp. Do not let them give up their strength. Right? That's kind of unfamiliar to us. That's a, we can kind of see where this is going, but it's a little unfamiliar because in this time, in the scriptures, in this context, the hand, it symbolized, it was the symbol of a person's very own strength. It was, a, it was a symbol of their power. 
So letting, hand, letting hands be, be weak or limp was actually not just their, their physical hands. It was their, their whole personhood. It was their nature. If their hands are weak, that person is weak. If their hands are strong, that person is strong. Right? Letting someone's hands grow limp, go weak, was an indication of, of defeat of sorts, right? Of a sense of discouragement. All of these things. And, and Jerusalem is being defined as a people whose hands have gone weak, whose hands have dropped. And if you look through this chapter, you see, you see that these people, is it necessarily from weakness? It's not what we would consider to be weakness, but I think what we would consider to be weariness. They had had so much happen to them. Corrupt government was robbing them day and night. It was a, it was a, a kingdom of division. Governments was, were corrupt. They were robbing people of their things and Within that, then there was also the people, they started to notice that not only was it the government, it was also the religious leaders started kind of coming together. There was a, there was a, there was a just general evil corruptness over Jerusalem. But there was a small faithful group of people who were, who were meek in stature, but they were growing weary. They were growing weary of seeing all of this injustice all around them. And so what could they do? What could they do when God promises them, do not let your hands grow weak? Do not let your hands grow weak. He's not saying, come up with the strength on your own. Like our stories, our movies, our books that we see, that our strength, this kind of inner strength, is, is an inward strength, kind of picking yourself up again, picking yourself up. Find that strength inwardly so that it can be expressed outwardly. That's not what God tells them. Instead, he gives them a direction and a promise of love of himself. That the strength that they will find that they are going to have in their hands is not coming through themselves, but it is coming through the hands of their Lord. God is going to lift them up. The love and promise that God is giving to them is one where he lifts them up, just like we see in another prophet in Jeremiah. Earlier, a couple of weeks ago, we saw this where Jeremiah was, was shown that God was lifting everyone up, and he says, my hands are like this potter's hands making this pot of clay. I am picking you up. The promise of my love is found in the strength of my hands as I lift you out of it. One strength is not defined by their physical strength in their hands, but rather the strength that they find in the Lord's hands as he lifts them up. We see this, in, again, not just as an individual person, but we also see this as a people. Jerusalem, he's speaking to a people. Deuteronomy 32, verses 36 says, The Lord will indeed vindicate his people 
and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength, same thing, that strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free. God, in his promise of love, is quick to come lift his people and show them that their true strength ultimately comes from him, not their own individual measures. We can try to lift ourselves up. We try that all the time. We try to lift ourselves and kind of develop the strength within us, this, this, uh, perseverance of sorts in ourself, but God is offering this promise to say, I will lift you out of that. It just means simply come and let me do so. And I love this example that David gives in 2 Samuel 24, where he says this. He says, David answers God and he says, I have great anxiety. Please let us fall into the Lord's hands because his mercies are great, don't let me fall into human hands. I think this is a wonderful prayer for anyone that struggles with anxiety. Anyone that struggles with anxiety, with fearfulness, you can write this down, 2 Samuel 24, verses 14. I have great anxiety. That is not a bad thing to tell your God. That is something rather he is able to speak in and through to remind you that your strength is ultimately from him. He is lifting us up. You don't have to do it on your own. And within that, as we, as we give up this strength, as our strength is no longer by ourselves, but our strength is in God, our strength is in Him, we come to a posture of need. And we recognize then in our limitations that God is quick to draw near and remind us of the promise of His love through the presence of His love. Through the presence of His love. Let's keep reading. This is in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is among you a warrior who saves. In other contexts, we see that, that God is, is spoken of as this warrior, as this warrior, and some translations read, as a mighty God. He is mighty God. But again, this description, this description is so complex because it's not talking uh, but merely about a physical strength, but it's talking about a divine strength, this mightiness, this warrior-like physical strength. It's a love that exudes out from God, and it is so big, it is so captivating, it is so mighty that it is like a warrior that is standing above in victory. You see, these, these images, they blend together. They blend together to show us what the presence of God is like amongst a people who are hurting, a people who need him, a people who are crying out, saying, my strength can no longer be found in myself. 
I have tried that. I've tried that and I keep failing. I need you. And we see this moment of God coming through his presence. And it's this love that encapsulates and is warrior-like in its victory, but it is mighty in its love. And not only that, I want you to see that this promise of love, this presence of God's love, is also described in the very nature and the definition of God himself coming incarnate. Because God himself coming through, coming on earth as a child, as Jesus Christ, he has a name, Isaiah 9, 6. We're going to be talking about this. We're going to be diving in depth into this verse and, um, on Christmas Eve, but I want to just show you this, this section here where it says, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named, listen to this, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's the same name for that same, a warrior who saves. That warrior, mighty God. A warrior who saves, mighty God. That's the same name for the same God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The loving, compassionate God who sees his people weary, weary in strength and filled with discouragement, promises them that his love will be among them, but not as one who stands above them in this unapproachable nature, but one who stands with them one who is with them and among them. His presence is one of peace and one of humility. And there's no other way to see that. This warrior, this warrior of peace who saves and delivers his people is one that is mighty. It is a mighty love that God is giving to his people. And you start to see the, the nature of this, of this passage turn. Because as we're given these promises of love, of God's love, and we're beginning to see the nature of it, the presence of it, as we'll also see in his son Jesus, this mighty warrior-like Savior who's coming to lift his people up, it begins to move. It begins to move our affections towards him because we begin to see that God's love is not unapproachable. It's approachable. It's not aloof. It's sensitive. It's caring. And it's at the same time so mighty, this presence of divine love. It encapsulates all of these traits And it's here in this moment that something completely baffling and remarkable happens. In this passage, we start to see that God defines, and he starts to tell us, give us descriptions of the nature, the nature of his love. And he does it in three ways. 
The nature of God's love is he delights, he quiets, and he bursts into song. Now, this this section, let me read it for you. It's verse 17, and it's just right at the end. It says, He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet in his love, and he will delight in you with singing. Now, this section here is kind of moving from the circumstance to the person to now this this nature, this nature of God's love, of how he's going to define himself, how he loves his people. We see it in this three kind of this threefold way. All of these things are this section is meant to be taken kind of as a simultaneous, simultaneous action, but it's also this kind of put together all into one. But let's take the first two and then we'll kind of add on that third one. Add on that third one. First, he delights. It says he rejoices over you with gladness. Gladness also can mean delight. He delights in you. He's rejoicing over you with delight. Uh, a, a scholar, a theologian, he once put it this. He just said, Consider Almighty God sinking into contemplations of love over a once wretched human can be hardly absorbed in the human mind. What does he mean by that? He means that in humanity, in the human condition, we see faults. We see faults, we see imperfections, we see suffering, we see hardships. And it leads to a lot of questions and it also leads to a lot of assumptions. It leads to a lot of difficulty. And the baffling nature of this is that God's people, that when God says, I love you, like he does in Isaiah, when he says, I love you, I love you, my people, what does he mean by that? He means that he delights in you. He delights in you. He is rejoicing. He is glad. It is the very nature of God's love to delight in those that he loves, despite imperfections, despite all of these things, these problems that we say, because we often do that. We often say, well, but what about this? We frequently move to pessimism when we start to think about about how could God love me? How could God, as he's described in the scriptures, as one of being loved, me filled with all of my imperfections, all of my problems. How could he love me? And it is amazing to see that his response is, I rejoice over you. I delight in you. I think about you. I am filled with gladness when I speak and I remind you that you are my child and I am your God. I remember when I was in high school, I had a lot of insecurities when it came to how God, how I thought about God the Father loving me, 
this was like something that I really had to work through. I was, I struggled with it because I had some difficulties in my home life. I had some, in my high school years, I had a lot of problems with um, just my family and one thing leading to another. I was just insecure about thinking about how God the Father loves me as a son. And that was, if there was anything in my faith that was challenging, it was to really even believe that God loves me. I mean, maybe, yeah, God loves me like collectively. If I'm like a people who, if I'm a part of his church, maybe he loves me there. But when I became a believer and I started to seriously read the scriptures and I also had people disciple me, one thing that they kept coming back to is they would hear the language that I would say, which was, do you, do you know, Mark, that God loves you? Yeah, yeah, of course I know that. No, but do you really know it? Do you know that God like, really loves you? And I had to have that spoken to me over and over again for me to start to begin to understand that God's love, the nature of his love, is a completely different characteristic, is a completely different nature than anything I had ever experienced before. And as I started, as my heart started to open up to this very idea through faith, God began to speak these words into my life, which was delight. Words like this, gladness, rejoicing. These deeper characteristics, these deeper actions that God has towards his people. And it was starting to change the way that I, that I thought about how God approached me, what he thought about me. God doesn't merely just like you. God loves you. And he delights, he delights over being your God. Go to him. Don't think that he's so unapproachable. It's the very nature of his humility and his approachability that we see his delight in his people. He delights in us. But he simply, it, it isn't just a delight. It's a quietness, this quietness. What, is, what does that mean? Let's think about that for a second. It says, he will be quiet in his love. Other translations, and I think this one might be a, a slightly better because it's a little bit better definition. It says, he will quiet you by his love. Now, this is one thing, this is one reason why there's a lot of benefit to when you have a, when you have a, a word or you have something in the scriptures, you have something in here that we normally know what that word is. It's good to look it up in the languages because you start to see in the original language what we would make descriptions out of. The biblical languages, they have like one word for it. So it gets really complicated because you're trying to describe something that one word is being used for. 
And this is what's really wonderful about that phrase right here. He will be quiet in his love. He will quiet you in his love. That is this simple phrase that's used throughout the scriptures. It's a, it's a feminine phrase of a mother holding her child, looking over her child, and her child falling into a contemplated quietness. As a mother nurses her child, there is a quiet contemplation that she has over her child as she's, as she's comforting and holding her child. That's what that phrase means. He will quiet you in his love is a love that is described only as a, as a mother holding her baby would see. Jamie Smith, a philosopher, he writes this, the smile of the cherishing mother that evokes the smile of the infant is but a microcosm of the cosmic truth that God's gracious initiative in the carnation that he first loved us. It's this provoking smile of a creator who meets us in the flesh, granting us even the grace that allows us to love him in return. It's like a mother holding her child and smiling. And if you're a parent, as you know, over many days and weeks of smiling to your baby, it's that one joyful moment when that baby smiles at you in return. And in that, there's a quiet contemplation, a stability of love. And that is the, that is the nature of God's love that he is describing right now. Not only does he delight in his people, but he quietly contemplates his love for us. We see this as an example and as a reflection of it in Luke 2, verses 19, when it says, Mary was treasuring up all of these things in her heart and meditating on them. This is when the, this is when the shepherds, they come to Mary and Joseph after Jesus was being born and they begin to tell her of all the things that happened while they were in the, in the fields, while the shepherds and all the angels came down. She was looking at baby Jesus and filled with a contemplated quiet love that she had as she looked at him. I think that's amazing. And it's baffling at the same time. But this is what I love about this verse. I love that it's not just about God delighting in his people, God rejoicing with gladness over his people, God quietly contemplating over how much he loves them, over how much he loves them. But it doesn't stay there. It doesn't stay in a quiet contemplation. This is, it doesn't stay in this moment because God freely lets us know that he bursts into song over his people. 
that last verse that's meant to be a statement. It's, it's encompassing, it's all together, but it's also very unique. It says, God will delight in you with singing. God will delight in you with singing. I remember there's a, when my wife was pregnant with our, our, first, our first son, Gabe, I had heard this thing. I'm not sure if it's scientifically accurate, but I feel like way more confident in after this story, and I'm going to tell you. Um, it's this, if you sing to your baby while they're, while they're in utero, then they'll respond to your voice, right? They'll, they'll get to know the voice. I mean, they know the voice of the mother. Um, they recognize the voice of the mother, but if the father speaks and reads, reads to the baby while they're in the womb, sings while the baby's in the womb, then they're going to recognize their voice more quickly. Well, as a new, you know, coming to be a new dad, I was like singing to him, and which is kind of weird to think about now because like, you know, Amy's laying down and I'm like singing to her stomach, you know, like all quietly. But I kept singing this one song. Uh, it's from Marvin Gaye. It's Ain't No Mountain High Enough. You guys might know that song. It just came to me. It was, it, inspiration hit. That's the song that we went with. Because it had the word baby in it, and I'm like, it means something different, but I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going for it. So I would, I would sing to, I would sing to Gabe in utero, like, all the time. All the time I would sing to him. And so this is what happened. This is what went down. When he was born, I'm not making this up. When he was born, he, like, does that big, like, cry, you know, when he gets out. And they, they wrap him up, and they're bringing him over to us. And I started being filled with all these sorts of emotions, like, my baby's here. We also, we didn't know what the gender was going to be. So when that happened, we're like, it's a boy. Ah! You know, we're like starting to cry. And, and then I was like, I'm singing. I'm starting to sing, you know. And so I start singing the song. And I kid you not, as he's wrapped up, he does this. And he looks at me. I don't know if he could see me, but he recognized my voice. And this is what happened. I just let it go. I just started belting out that song. I was like, cause baby that, you know, I was like singing as loud as I could. And I was like, I want, this is my son. I'm, I'm singing to him. This is amazing. And I wasn't even thinking about it. And in the background, there was like a, that's enough, sir. You don't, you don't have to do that. Right. But I don't remember them. I don't remember the doctors. I just remember that moment where I got to see my son and nothing was left in. I couldn't do anything else but burst into a song, a song that I was singing directly to him, and it was awesome. And it was really cool, and further proves the perhaps scientific data that they do recognize your voice. And so it became this thing where Amy and I, we would talk about how, how this, this moment of, um, you know, maybe it was awkward for the, for the doctors, but not for me, because all I remember was that I was filled with so much joy. I was so excited that the only action that I could give was to sing a burst of song of gladness, of delight in my son. And as I think about that, we consider that God's love is in a similar way. He rejoices to us, but he doesn't stay. He doesn't stay stoic. He is not like this quiet, still, contemplative God all the time. Sometimes 
The nature of his love is one that bursts into song, bursts into rejoicing over his people. And what we see in that is that throughout the scriptures, we start to see that when people sing, when people sing to God, when there is delight, when there is a contemplation, when there's a love towards God, it is not a new thing, but rather it is a reflection of God's love to us. And that leads us into Advent. Luke 2, verses 8 through 14. I want to read this to you because I want to show you where the nature of God's love is found in and through his people. Luke 2, verses 8 through 14, it says, In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at, the flock, over, at night over the flock. Then the angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is, who is the Messiah, the Lord. Check this out. Look back at Zephaniah. Do not fear. Do not let your hands grow weak because the Lord your God is among you. A warrior who saves. The same, the Savior of the Lord, the Messiah, is there. There is now a proclamation of love given through the nature of God. He wants to speak to his people. This will be your sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. The quiet, contemplative love of God is going to be found in a mother in a manger holding her son, looking at him. The quiet, contemplative love that is found in God is going to be a reflection found by Mary. But is it going to stay there? It does not stay there because, listen, suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Bursts of song, bursts of praise. The nature of God's love and his singing over his people is, a refle is reflected in his creation, singing rejoices back to him. The nature of God's love is reflected in the creation as his creatures return their praise to the creator. Let me say that again. The nature of God's love is reflected in the creation as his creatures return their praise to their creator. Friends, the reason why this verse is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament is because this is the promise of God's love in Christ's advent. The reflection and the physical expression of the God's nature is so, in so loving the world 
that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. We love. We demonstrate a reflection of God's love because God first loved us. That's John 4, 19. 1 John 4, 19. And it leads us into a posture of love and admiration for the God who first loved us, who first began to show us his nature, the very nature of himself. And through that, we then reflect it all back to him in delight, in gladness, in quiet contemplation, but also into bursts of song and bursts of rejoicing and gladness. That is what Advent evokes within us, is a response of love back to the one who first loved us. Will you guys pray with me? God, we thank you that you that you loved us first and that you continue to do so. And God, we, we pray that we would not forget that our strength is ultimately found in your Son, Jesus Christ. Because by sending your Son down, he became the sacrifice for us. And the nature of the love that you, that you show through him by sending him is one that causes our heart to rejoice. But I also pray, God, that it causes us to put our faith in Christ not try to think that our strength is from ourselves, but our strength is from you. And we can trust you because you are one who promises your love, that you delight in your people through Christ's sacrifice. You think about us and you rejoice in song over us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.